Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello! When we last talked about Queen Charlotte, we couldn't confirm that she was a woman of color, but we thought that for this week, we would bring you the stories of two women who were, and they lived amongst aristocratic society in Georgian and Victorian England. We split up for this one. I'll start with the story of Dido Elizabeth Bell, and Beckett will tell you the story about Sarah Forbes Bonetta. A quick warning for little ears. The second subject in this episode has a traumatic childhood, which we can't really sanitize effectively and still tell her story. So this is your notification to listen to especially the first section of Sarah Forbes Bonetta before you let anyone who is sensitive or young or disinclined to listen to a violent story hear this audio. Okay. And on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. A mystery was afoot in the portrait of two 18th-century aristocratic young ladies. The identity of one of them was known, but who is the other? This is the tale of that mystery girl. She lived a life of dual societal prejudices of being both illegitimate and a woman of color. The end. Let's talk about... Dido Elizabeth Bell. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1766, after less than a year, British Parliament repealed the Stamp Act after colonists in British America kind of objected. The first patent was granted for a fairly ineffective fire escape consisting of a wicker basket, a chain, and a pulley. 121 years later, a woman, Anna Connolly, patented an iron-railed bridge version that was much safer. St. Paul's Chapel, the oldest church building in Manhattan, was built. Queens College in New Jersey was founded. Nearly 60 years later, it was renamed after a Revolutionary War hero and philanthropist, Colonel Henry Rutgers. James Christie opened Christie's Auction House in London. And Queen Charlotte gave birth to her fourth of 13 surviving children. It was the first girl who they named Charlotte. Samuel Wesley, a composer nicknamed the English Mozart, Robert Bailey Thomas, creator of the Farmer's Almanac, and James Fortin, an African-American abolitionist and philanthropist, were all born. King Frederick V of Denmark-Norway and Queen's consort to Philip V of Spain, Queen Isabella, both died. And in 1766, a little mixed-race girl was baptized and began her life as a member of a British aristocratic family. Dido Elizabeth Bell was born sometime in 1761. She was the only child of Captain John Lindsay and a woman known to history as Mariah or Maria Bell. I know that's a bit vague. This is one of those stories that kind of has to be pieced together by the stories of the people around her. As far as legal documentation or anything in her own words goes, there's very little to go on. <laughs> I know. Oh, goody. But let's start with Dido's father because his life was well documented. John Lindsay was the second son of four children of a Scottish baronet, Sir Alexander Lindsay of Evelix, and Amelia Murray. John Lindsay's mother, Amelia, was the daughter of a Viscount and the sister of William Murray the first Earl of Mansfield, 
He is going to play a big role in this story in a little bit, but just tuck him away. Amelia herself was one of 11 children of an aristocratic Scottish clan. So it's safe to say that Dido's father was born into a lofty place in Great Britain. But despite those fiscal and societal head starts he had, John Lindsay was the second son. And that path doesn't have a title at the end of it. He's going to have to work for a living. So after his education, that work was in the military. He was a naval man, my dear. John had joined the Navy during the Seven Years' War. We've talked about that many times. And fought off the coast of France. He was promoted to the captain of a warship in the West Indies. And by 20, he was the captain of a brand spanking new 28-gun warship called the HMS Trent. Now, at the time, these ships were built fairly quickly and made of fir, which is a lesser quality wood than oak, which shipbuilders would prefer. But when you need to build a ship fast to go into battle and it might sink, you're really not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. These ships at the time had a lifespan of maybe 10 years if they weren't shot full of holes. During this time in his life and career, Captain Lindsay, let's call him that now, Captain Lindsay was on the Trent sailing between West Africa to Haiti and Cuba to British American colonies and then repeat. His job as the captain of a naval ship was to protect British trade ships from enemy attacks. And then if those ships did attack, he was to capture them, stealing their cargo. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to. Some of the ships that he was protecting were slave traders. It was a very big business, and British slave traders were very active at this time. The ships that he was capturing were French and Spanish and maybe some Dutch, not just any kind of trade ships. There were, again, a lot of slave trader ships. And it was during this time that he met an enslaved young teenage girl named Mariah Bell. How they met is one of those either-or stories. None of the options are great. He could have, A, met her when she was a slave at a sugar plantation in the Caribbean. We've talked about being a slave on a sugar plantation in the Caribbean before. Physically grueling, physically dangerous. It was basically a death sentence. Sugar was such a huge commodity, especially in Great Britain, once all those British people became addicted to the teas of the West Indies. There is another option. It has stronger legs as far as I'm concerned. Captain Lindsay captured a Spanish slave ship, and Mariah was one of the enslaved women on board. Was she from Africa? No one knew. She was so very young, maybe 14 at about the time that they met. She could even have been born in the Caribbean to African parents. Regardless of how they met, she was still enslaved, and he was not. So it was not an equal, loving, romantic story at all. At some point early in this relationship, Captain Lindsay and Mariah created Dido. It's believed that he took her aboard the Trent to live, which is technically not allowed, but in practice, very common. Now, remember, he's the captain of this ship. He has his own quarters. He can pretty much do whatever he wants. You'll read some stories that have, you know, they met and fell in love and created. Well, those are just fairy tales as far as I'm concerned. So any kind of cozy domestic situation that might be going on, I really think it's just a matter of her trying to survive. 
By all accounts, it seems as though he treated her okay, and he did protect her from his crew. But again, there is no equal partners in this relationship whatsoever. Exactly where Dido was born is yet another mystery. Yes, there are records of mixed-race children being born to British soldiers or officers in the Caribbean, but this is not one of those. There's no record of her birth. Some accounts have her born in the West Indies. Others have her born aboard the Kent. Others have her in London. It seems highly likely that Mariah was only about 15 years old. Captain Lindsay at this point was about 24. But what is definitely true is that by British common law, because Dido was born to an enslaved woman, Dido was also enslaved. Now, the name Dido, it seems kind of unusual to us. It's not even in the top 2,000 names for all those years that names have been tracked. In the 18th century, it was still not fairly common, but it was not unheard of to name, usually to Black enslaved children. The name Dido is actually a mythological queen and founder of Carthage. She was later rebranded by the poet Virgil. So actually, Dido is a great name. I was kind of surprised that it wasn't anywhere on the 2,000 list. I thought maybe it would be down towards the bottom, maybe, but no, it's not anywhere on there. Now, she was not given the last name Lindsay. It would be one thing for Captain Lindsay to financially care for Dido and for Mariah. It would be one thing for him to verbally acknowledge that Dido was his daughter. Two things that he actually did. I guess it must have been too far of a leap across societal norms for Captain Lindsay to actually give Dido his last name. We do know that Captain Lindsay came back to London and brought Dido with him. It's believed that he also brought Mariah with him as well. She would have been nursing the baby. So that's the best way to take care of her if he's wanting to take care of his daughter. Where they lived, nobody knows yet. He either supported them in his own home or put them in a home where Mariah would have been some type of a servant. We do know that a year after Dido's birth, he was involved in a battle in Havana, Cuba with Spanish ships. He valiantly took command of another British ship when its captain was killed in action. And for this battle, as well as other acts of courageousness, he was knighted a couple of years later. Also in the next few years, Captain Lindsay, who is not married, fathered four more children with four more women. At least three of them were children of mixed race. So you know, take that for what you will. Another option for where Mariah and Dido were put up to live is at Captain Lindsay's uncle's house. Now, remember at the very beginning when I talked about his uncle, William Murray? At this point in our story... William Murray is the Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench. He is at the tippity top of the legal pyramid in Great Britain. Regardless of where Dido lived for the first five years of her life, she finally enters a historical record at the age of about five when she was baptized. Yes, a baptismal record. The baptismal record reads Dido Elizabeth, daughter of Belle and Mariah, his wife, aged five years. Okay, there's a couple things to unpack there, but it was on November 20th, 1766. So that's where we get the birth date for Dido. Five years earlier would have been 1761. So who's this bell that's listed as her father? Well, they couldn't very well list Dido's actual father. There's that societal line that no one's going to cross. 
It's also possible that Mariah did marry, but a man simply named Bell? Most likely, the name Bell in the father's slot was a place filler. Like, they're standing there, they're going, oh, what name should we put? Um, just put Bell. Our girl now has a name, Dido Elizabeth Bell. And Dido Elizabeth Bell went to live permanently with Captain Lindsay's uncle and aunt at their estate called Kenwood. So who are these relatives, this aunt and uncle of Captain Lindsay's? Well, we've already met Lord Mansfield and his wife, Lady Mansfield, first Countess of Mansfield. She was called by Lord Mansfield Lady Betty, like in correspondence, which I thought was very adorable. And let's call her that because there's another Elizabeth, which is her real name in this story. Both Lord Mansfield and Lady Betty were in their 60s. They had been married for close to 30 years. They were pillars of society. They had very progressive viewpoints and they were childless. Now, having nieces and nephews be raised by family members is very common during this era. We were just talking about it in the Martha Washington episode, where George and Martha raised two of their grandchildren. In this particular situation, they helped raise one of their nephews. His name was David Murray. He was the heir to this Mansfield estate. David Murray was a diplomat, an English diplomat, who had married a Polish aristocratic widow, definitely for love. Their daughter, whose name was Elizabeth Murray, was born a year before Dido, and then the family went to Vienna, where David was an ambassador. When Elizabeth was just six, her mother, who was only 29 at the time, died. David was devastated. He could not raise this child on his own. So David took Lady Elizabeth and dropped her off at Uncle Lord Mansfield's house, Kenwood, in the countrified outskirts of London to be raised. So Elizabeth is now there permanently, and Dido quickly followed. Exactly why Dido landed at Kenwood, there's just speculation. It could originally and most likely was to be a playmate for Lady Elizabeth. You know, Lord and Lady Mansfield loved children, so what's one more? What is obvious, though, is that Dido was not, was not brought to Kenwood to train her up in a servant capacity. She was brought in as a member of the family. And at this point, Captain Lindsay and Mariah Bell pretty much exit stage left, heavens to Murgatroyd, Give me just a second and let's close out their stories so we can skedaddle out of Dido's life. Captain Lindsay did some more heroic things, managed to miss serving in the American War of Independence. He did get married to a noblewoman. They did not have any children. Captain Lindsay worked his way up the ranks, eventually becoming commander-in-chief of the East Indies Station, then commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean. He did welcome King George III and Queen Charlotte aboard one of his ships. When he was 50, he was promoted to rear admiral. However, his health was taking a turn at this point. Despite several trips to Bath to take the waters and rest, he died in 1788 at the age of 51. He was buried in Westminster Abbey with no marker. At some point, Captain Lindsay gave Mariah a hand up. And when Dido was about 13 in 1744 and Mariah was about 28, he gave her a plot of land in Pensacola, Florida. 
On the property record, Mariah stated that she was widowed, that she had been enslaved, that she had lived in London, and had manumitted herself for 200 Spanish dollars. And that is where we're going to have to leave Mariah Bell because she just drops out of history at that point. So let's get in our time machine and go back. It's 1766. Kenwood House outside of London, beautiful, rolling hills, wooded suburbs. Dido and her second cousin, Elizabeth, are raised by Lord and Lady Mansfield. You know, Lord Mansfield had not been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born into a cash-poor Scottish noble family. He was the fourth son. Again, even if there was money to hand down or title, he wasn't the one that was going to get it. So at eight, his parents left him and a brother to be educated at a school in Scotland. And then as a teen, he made his way from Scotland to London over 400 miles to attend Westminster School, where he earned a scholarship. And then he attended Christ Church College in Oxford, where he actually said he was from Bath, not Scotland. Mm -hmm. Uh, He made enough contacts. He was a nice enough guy. He knew people that helped support him while he studied for the bar. And then he became a lawyer and worked his way up. At the age of 50 in 1756, so that would be five years before Dido was born, he became the Chief Justice President of the Courts of England and Wales. So, yes, he is up at the top, but he came from very humble roots. So while he is a titled noble... He knows the value of working his way up, and he's probably able to relate to Dido's situation in a way that other people in the household can't. He is not a traditional aristocrat, although he is doing a fine job of being one. Kenwood House is stunning. When he became chief justice, he put a lot of money into their house. It is a beautiful mansion. It's still there. You can still go visit it. And it was at Kenwood that was Dido's home. Now, London itself had over 15,000 Black people at this point in time. They had a community, but she was not raised as part of that community. She was raised alongside Elizabeth. They were educated together. And by all accounts, both of them were adored as if they were the daughters of Lord Mansfield and Lady Betty. When Dido was about 11 in 1774, Uncle Lord Mansfield made a pretty important decision in abolitionist history. Slavery was present at the time. Remember those slave ships that Dido's father was protecting? But there really wasn't any laws for it or against it. It was kind of a legal gray area. A case came before Lord Mansfield called Somerset versus Stewart. Basically, James Somerset was enslaved by Charles Stewart when they were in Boston. Charles Stewart then brought James back to England with him, but when he did, James ran away. He was captured. Stewart imprisoned him and was ready to send him to Jamaica to be sold. But in the time that James had come to England, he had been baptized. He had white British godparents. And he had an abolitionist lawyer who was looking for a case just like this one who petitioned for James' freedom. The case worked its way up through the courts for a couple of years and eventually landed on Lord Mansfield's desk. The argument was that, yes, slavery was legal in the colonies, but by bringing James to England, where neither English common law nor parliamentary law recognized slavery— 
It was therefore unlawful. So in this, my overly simplified version, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield freed James, saying that a master cannot, by force, compel a slave to go out of the kingdom. It didn't abolish slavery, but it was a huge step towards that and for human rights. It was in this decision, in the judgment for this case, that Lord Mansfield is still often quoted describing slavery as, quote, so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. Lord Mansfield, however, would go on to spend a lot of time pointing out to people that this ruling applied to this one case only, no others. Now, today in 2023, scholars are still arguing about the precedent that this case set and also argued to this day was the answer to this question. Did Dido's influence on the family affect Lord Mansfield's decision? As Dido is raised, she and Elizabeth are treated pretty equally. If Elizabeth gets a new dress, Dido gets a new dress. If Dido's bedroom is redecorated with new curtains, Elizabeth is also getting new curtains. They have the same tutors. They participate in the same activities. Dido was a member of the family, but sometimes, especially in 18th century British society, all family members are not equal, especially family members born out of wedlock. And, oh yes, also family members of color in a white family. So things kind of became muddy when people visited Kenwood House. There are a lot of accounts of people visiting Kenwood House and mentioning Dido. For instance, Dido may have eaten all her meals with the family when nobody else was around, when they had no visitors. But when company came, she was not allowed to come to the table. Sometimes, however, she would join the family in the drawing room afterwards. One visitor had described her as, quote, a Negro girl about 10 years old who had been six years in England and not only spoke with articulation and accent of a native, but repeated some pieces of poetry with a degree of elegance which would have been admired in any English child of her years. However, another frequent visitor to Kenwood, one Lady Mary Hamilton, who had served on Queen Charlotte's court, she talks in her diary of all kinds of gossip, spilling the tea about all kinds of comings and goings at Kenwood, and never once mentions Dido. Did she just not see her? Did Dido avoid her? Was Dido visiting someone else? It's in anything is possible. But Lady Mary Hamilton never mentioned her. But then Thomas Hutchinson, who was a former Massachusetts colony governor, gave physical descriptions of Dido and how she's viewed in the household. He said about Dido that she was, quote, she is sort of a superintendent over the dairy poultry yard, etc. She was called upon by my lord every minute for this thing and that and showed great attention to everything he said. Um, oh, Susan, she's working with dairy and chickens and ducks, so she's a servant, right? No, not necessarily. That was a job that was actually done by female aristocratic family members, so it wouldn't have been unusual even if Dido was born to a married couple and was white, she could have had this job. Elizabeth, however, probably didn't. Now, you have to remember, Elizabeth's father is the Mansfield heir. Elizabeth's father is still alive. He's married to another woman, having children in another country, fiscally supporting her. 
So she is an actual heiress living in this house. So I guess my point is, yes, they were equal family members until they weren't equal. So Dido and Elizabeth, arm in arm, grew into beautiful, intelligent, charming young ladies, playing and talking and really growing up like sisters. Lord Mansfield and Lady Betty commissioned a portrait of the two of them together. The official dating of this portrait is at about 1778, although that is still being researched. In this portrait, and I can almost guarantee that you, dear listener, have seen it. It's a portrait of a blonde, white, young lady, maybe a teenager. She is sitting with a crown of flowers in her hair and a book in her hand. And next to her, with an absolutely adorable dimple and a mischievous grin, is a black teenage girl, probably about the same age as the white girl. Uh, She's wearing a silver or a gray gown. She has a turban on her head with a black feather in it. She's holding a bounty of flowers and fruit in one arm and pointing probably exactly where her dimple on the other side of her face would be to her cheek. Fashion historians look at this portrait and the clothing that the two ladies are wearing. Elizabeth's gown is fairly um, fashion of the times. Dido's gown, not so much. To some fashion historians, it appears almost like a costume, maybe to wear to a costume ball. It does absolutely look very expensive. (laughs) But I draw your attention to any four-year-old girl with a Cinderella or Moana or Belle Halloween costume, and they want to wear it to their school picture. Dido could have chosen this dress herself. Some historians are saying that the turban was a nod to Dido's heritage, you know, an exotic heritage. But turbans were being worn by society women at this time. And we talked about that. Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who dies at about the beginning of Dido's life, loved to wear turbans. And honestly, it could just have been the artist's choice. The artist, a Scottish artist named David Martin, who did several portraits for Lord and Lady Mansfield, was very good at painting fabrics. So it may just have been artist choice, and he wanted to paint this beautiful, silky fabric. Debate the clothes all you want. Debate the pose all you want. What historians are not seeing in this portrait is a portrait of a lady's maid and her mistress or a servant of any type in her mistress. They are seeing equals. We really don't know too much about Dido's day-to-day life, what life was like, what kind of prejudice she faced. Did she ever leave the property alone and feel as if her life were threatened? Because, yes, she could have been grabbed and sold into slavery at any point by some nefarious individuals, but she wasn't. We do know that at about age 23, she began to work with Lord Mansfield, um, writing correspondence, basically working as his personal assistant. He is nearing 80. His life is getting towards the end. And Dido's life also is about to change. Dido was about 23, Lady Betty passed away. 
the family is changing. And the very next year, 25-year-old Lady Elizabeth left Kenwood to marry a man named George Fitch Hatton. He was yet another aristocrat. It was a good marriage for her. He had estates for her to live in. And actually, Elizabeth's husband was friends with a gentleman named Edward Austin. That's right. Jane Austen's brother, Elizabeth and Jane met. Jane, however, was not that impressed. This is what Jane Austen had to say about now it's Lady Elizabeth Finch Hatton. Quote, I have discovered that Lady Elizabeth, for a woman of her age and situation, has astonishingly little to say for herself. (laughs) Oh, dear. Jane, tell us how you really feel. (laughs) I am sure that I also would not impress Jane Austen. More changes were coming. (laughs) We said adieu to Rear Admiral Lindsay, but he's going to make a little curtain call here because this is a point where he passed away. He did provide in his will for two of his five children, but it's believed that Dido is not one of them. He left money for two of the kids, one named John and one named Elizabeth, but it's believed that that Elizabeth is not Dido Elizabeth. Maybe Rear Admiral Lindsay knew that Dido was well cared for. It might be something as simple as that. And a few years later, when she was just 32 and he was 88, Lord Mansfield died. While Rear Admiral Lindsay was buried in Westminster Abbey, he had no plaque. Lord Mansfield was buried in Westminster Abbey, and he has a monument. (laughs) So, okay, we can see who was more important here. When he died, his heir, Lady Elizabeth's father, David Murray, became the owner of Kenwood, and Dido was now out. He was married. He had children. He was going to be using the estate. Dido wasn't a part of his life. In his will, Lord Mansfield did remember both Elizabeth and Dido. Elizabeth, he actually called his niece. He did not call Dido that for some reason, but he did leave her 100 pounds a year annuity, so that's every single year. He also left her a 500-pound lump sum, which would have been enough for her to buy a house. But most importantly, in his will, he spelled out that Dido was a free woman. A couple of years later, Dido was also remembered in the will of one of Lord Mansfield's sisters who had come to live at the house. And this great aunt also left Dido uh, some money in her will. In March of 1793, Dido moved out of Kenwood. She would have been about 32 years old. She shows up on some church rolls in Westminster on December 5th, 1793, eight months after she moved out of Kenwood. She appears on a church roll again, this time For her marriage, Dido Bell married a Frenchman named John de Vignier. No, he was no nobleman. He was, you'll see this a lot, possibly a gentleman steward, which was like a butler. It would have been the highest position in an aristocratic household. He would have overseen all the servants. But on the marriage license, it simply says servant. So exactly what he did, we don't know. We do know that they lived in a middle-class area. They went to a very Tony church, St. John's Hanover Square, where, 93 years later, Theodore Roosevelt married his second wife, Edith. History just keeps crossing each other, doesn't it? Um, If we didn't know a lot about Dido's life when she was living in the high-profile household of Lord Mansfield, we know a lot less now about the life she lived with her husband. 
Dido had three children with John. Twins Charles and John were baptized within two years of Dido and John's marriage. And when Dido was 41, Thomas William was born. One of those twins may not have survived childhood. This isn't a family that's going to be well recorded, but we do know they lived in Pimlico. It was a growing middle-class suburb. Were they the only mixed-race family in London? Hardly. Was she involved in the Black community of London? Probably not. And her history stops here. Dido Elizabeth Bell de Vignier died in July of 1804 of unknown causes. She was buried at St. George's Hanover Square. As for her sons, like I said, one of them probably didn't survive childhood. They were, however, educated because now all the money that Dido had inherited belonged to her husband, and he was able to not work anymore. He was no longer a servant. Now he was listed as a gentleman. He had two more children by a woman that he married after the children were born and 15 years after Dido's death. The surviving twin, Charles, would get a position at the famous East India Company at the age of 14. Later, Charles became an officer in the Indian Army. Charles de Vigny's son, who he also named Charles, ultimately in his lifetime, went by the name Lindsay de Vigny. So I have to think that the stories were passed down, that the heritage of Dido Bell, her life stories were passed down to her children, even though her children were very young when she died. Let's fast forward 166 years to 1970. Dido's grave had to be moved for development. No records were kept as to where those graves were moved to, so her final resting place is now unknown. Okay, let's hop back into our TARDIS and advance another 10 years. It's the 1980s. Okay, remember that portrait of Elizabeth and Dido? After Lord Mansfield's death, it went into storage, not even in a frame. Eventually, it followed the Lord Mansfields and landed in the family's Scottish home, Schoon Palace. The name on the portrait said, The Lady Elizabeth Finch Haddon which would have been Lady Elizabeth's married name. But a historian named Jean Adams kind of took a look at it and said, huh, I know we assume that the other girl in the portrait, the black girl, is a servant, but is she? So Jean Adams dug in and found out all about Dido Bell. Then, a few years later, the TV show Fake or Fortune, a British show, got involved again because they wanted to know who painted that portrait. It had actually been attributed to the wrong painter all these years later. And now the portrait, properly labeled, is still in Schoon Palace. And now let's talk about media. Let's start with books. The primary biography that I used was called Bell. The Slave Daughter and the Lord Chief Justice by Paula Byrne. It was published in 2014, and I personally think they did the book a disservice by promoting it as the story behind the movie, because so little is known about Dido's actual life that this book is actually very good at putting her into the time period, talking about Mansfield and John Lindsay and Kenwood and the slave trade, everything that was going on around her. Yes, it also gets the factual information that was known in 2014 into the book, but it is 300 pages. I thought it was very well done. 
Another biography that I used was called Dido Elizabeth Bell, a biography by Fergus Mason. It is very short, and it spends a lot of time, again, on the roosters, not exactly on Dido, but as a quick read for a background of what was going on around her and the people around her, uh, this is a good book for that. Very quick read. You're also going to see a book called Dido Bell by Kim Blake. It is very hard by the description and by the book itself to realize that it's historical fiction. It was a mistake that I made and I started reading it and I was like, wait a second, there's dialogue in here. This is not nonfiction. So I did have a little hint of betrayal. So my opinion of it is prejudiced. I'm not going to deny that. And I think if you like the movie for its entertainment value, you might also like the book. As for online sources that I used, there were quite a few. See, not a lot of books. <laughs> um, but uh, the primary ones that I used were articles in The Guardian, a really extensive article about the portrait on a website called Fashion History Timeline, written by fashion historian Kenna Libes. There was a thought co piece by Nadra Kareen Niddle that I liked, and English Heritage, which is also a podcast. I didn't listen to the podcast. I just read the article, which did have some really nice illustrations that they commissioned. Because other than that one portrait, there's no pictures of Dido out there. And we use this site quite a bit. It does require a subscription. It's called Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. So I will link you up to those. Uh, you can visit Kenwood House, and I am going to try and drag Beckett there in September when we go to London. Quite honestly, as of this recording, I don't know if it's sold out or not. You might want to check. Uh, we will link you in the show notes if there is any more openings or if you want to get on the wait list. Also, we'll link you if you would like to join us for the dinner cruise in London. It is such a fun party, even if you come alone. It is a fun party because you walk in and you are with friends. So we'll link you to Like Minds Travel, where you can find information about that. But back to Kenwood House, you can visit. It's free. It's in the suburbs of London. It's 112 acres of gardens. And of course, there's all the artwork and the house itself. There are two YouTube videos that I'm going to put in the show notes that I really thought were interesting. The first one, it's a Crow's Creek production. It is a study of Dido's life through the lens of the portrait by David Martins. The other is called A Stitch in Time. It's a BBC production. of. It's a television show. It's a fashion historian's view of history. So in this one, uh, it starts with the portrait and the historian has other fashion historians actually create Dido's dress. They find out what kind of fabric they thought it was and just look at other portraits by the same artist and find some similarities. It's it's fascinating. And I do love the host of the show. As for more moving pictures, in addition to those YouTube videos, is the 2013 movie Belle with Gugu Mbatha-Raw. She's one of those actresses that is fantastic, and you know her from so many productions. But honestly, this movie, it's kind of like, do you know when you're watching a Doctor Who episode, and you're like, I know that actor from somewhere, and you pause it, and you look him up? It's like that. It's like a pun absolutely intended. Who's who of British actors? Matthew Good from Downton Abbey is in it. Penelope Wilton, Emily Watson, Sam Reed, Miranda Richardson, Tom Wilkinson. It's just really well cast. 
This movie was actually my introduction to Dido's life years ago when the movie first came out. I enjoyed it then, and I did rewatch it in the last couple of weeks. And I still thought what I did the last time that it was very beautiful. The production value was high. However, this time, the fiction part of the historical fiction really irked at me because, you know, I was in a framework of what is the truth here? So... Beckett and I are usually very good at separating the fact from the fiction in our heads and enjoying the production for what it is as a fiction. So I can say that I enjoy this one as well. You might want to watch it. Just go in knowing it's not a documentary. For instance, the big case that is a major plot point of this movie, Lord Chief Justice did indeed oversee that case, but he didn't make the ruling that was brought forth in the movie. But anyway... Also, I will link you to a Frock Flicks article about the production of Belle, the movie. Frock Flicks has been around forever. And they also have a podcast. The podcast that they have for Dido is based on the movie Belle, and it's kind of like a scene-by-scene discussion of the history and the fashion and the fashion history <laughs> and, uh, of the times. But they are so good over at Frock Flicks at spotting costumes from other movie productions, and they break them down down to their underpinnings. And I was amused by one of the tags they had in this article was, you need proper petticoats. Yeah, something the ladies over there are always discussing. And that's all I have. Amoba Aina was born sometime in 1843 in the village of Oki Odan, near the coast in modern-day Nigeria, near its border with Benin. She was a child of the Agbado clan of the Yoruba people. For centuries, Yoruba had been under the protection and direction of the powerful Oyo Empire. Aina's people were sort of quasi-independent all of this time. They were the ones that held the corridor to the sea. But as Oyo started self-destructing in the 1700s, some of these sort of loosely held territories rebelled and kicked the Oyo overlords out about 20 years before Ina was born. What that did mean, though, was that those areas, having lost the mighty retribution and protection of the Oyo, were now extremely vulnerable to the slave raids of neighboring empires. Britain had outlawed the trade in people in their own country and territories in 1833, but Portuguese and therefore Brazilian slave traders still paid top dollar. This was a large source of income and of power for many leaders in Africa. They would raid a neighbor, send survivors to the Europeans, eliminate their rivals, and take over their land. This is why we do not know who Ina's parents were. One of the Agbado's neighbors, the Kingdom of Dahomey, had not only freed themselves from the Oyo, they had weakened the empire greatly. And that left Agbado lands with their valuable coastal areas completely vulnerable to attack. King Gezo was pretty ruthless. He had close ties to Brazilian slave traders and had come to his throne in the first place by violently overthrowing his own brother. During a raid on her village, five-year-old Ina saw both of her parents decapitated in the melee. Her brothers and sisters disappeared, never to be seen again. Killed or captured, she never knew. Some traditional scarification marks on Ina's face gave her captors some vital information about her lineage. It marked her out as someone of noble birth. 
As such, she was more valuable to King Gezo as a symbol rather than a commodity to be traded with the Europeans. She was, therefore, taken to the city of Abomi, the capital of Dahomey, and placed in captivity. No harm will come to you, said the reassurance from the king. For a couple of years, she was kept in a small cage next to other unfortunate prisoners who Ina watched from time to time be taken out and placed into the sacrificial rituals of the king of Dahomey. Her jailers taunted her often with the truth. She was being saved for ceremonial purposes too, and when it suited him, King Gezo intended to sacrifice her as a gift to his royal ancestors. Unbeknownst to Ina, her fate had just been sealed. King Gezo had just the spectacle in mind, because Dahomey was about to receive a visit from an envoy of the most powerful nation on earth. Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom was sending a committee to meet with him. Ostensibly, this meeting was about trade, but King Gezo knew it was really about the slave trade. Britain was going to put pressure on him to stop and switch to other commodities, and palm oil is fine, or whatever, but doesn't inspire fear among the neighbors or respect. The British were known for their strong-arm tactics, and King Gezo was not about to be bulldozed into something he didn't want to do. Rehearsals began for a spectacle to impress and intimidate his white visitors. This was the ceremony of Ekoni Nuato, the watering of the graves. 31-year-old Captain Frederick Forbes and his party were no strangers to Africa or to battles against the slave trade. In fact, not only had they participated in a blockade of slave ships off the coast of Sierra Leone, Captain Forbes and his crew of the Bonetta had been instrumental in the destruction of the slave pens and trading posts that were made famous during the case of the Amistad, in which some kidnapped Africans had been able to successfully sue for their freedom in a New England court. He was sent to begin negotiations with King Gezo. However, he was to be completely clear that Britain was perfectly willing to have military action if it came to that, so he had a hard job. In June 1850, the party arrived to their scheduled meeting with King Gezo, and Captain Forbes wrote an extensive memoir of this event. I'll give you a link. Um, Almost the first thing he saw was a gruesome edifice, and I quote, In the center of the square was an octangular building adorned with 148 human skulls, the victims of the tragedy of Oke Odon. This had been Ina's village. These had been her people. She had been regarding them every day. King Gezo used every tactic he had to show his strength and his refusal to be intimidated. He positioned himself as, and I quote, the King of the Blacks, referring to Queen Victoria as, quote, the Queen of the Whites. He had military parades go by, an open show of his people worshipping him, a strong presence of the striking and surprising all-female warrior guards called the Ahosi, which Europeans called Amazons, after the Amazons in Greek mythology. He plied his visitors with strong liquor. The good captain resisted intimidation, boredom, and inebriation for days. And then he heard the screaming. To his horror, he watched a strange parade moving along an upper wall. There were people dressed all in white and tied hand and foot who were being carried over the heads of warriors in these little baskets. Those Dahomeans that passed taunted the captives in the baskets, poking them with spears, screaming and swearing at them. And to Captain Forbes's horror, the first captive in line was tipped out over the wall into a pit. And at the bottom, he was beaten and then hacked to bits. Captain Forbes insisted that King Gezo put a stop to this immediately. King Gezo 
just mildly said, I couldn't possibly stop a tradition my people had carried out for hundreds of years. It would be shocking. It would be dishonorable. And, of course, King Gezo would look weak if people thought the British could boss him around. The British committee, while this slaughter continued, were able to negotiate for and buy two of the male captives, the best they could do. And these men were hustled out to the British contingent's lodging, like right on the brink of being tipped over the side they'd been rescued. And then they saw the little girl in her own basket making its way down the line. And this story briefly splits two possible ways. One has it that Captain Forbes insisted that Queen Victoria would look so poorly on a man who would sacrifice a child in this way and would be inspired to disregard his legitimacy. Story two is King Gezo, sensing a valuable opportunity, shrewdly removed her from the line and presented her as a gift. Whose idea it was exactly depends on the author you're reading, but it all comes down to this. Young Ina, aged around seven, was presented to Captain Forbes as a gift from King Gezo to Queen Victoria, personally, with his compliments. To quote Frederick Forbes, To refuse would have been to have signed her death warrant, which probably would have been carried into execution immediately. Ina was given to this whole other set of strange men after the sheer terror of the day she's had, the years of dread ahead of this, the terror of having lost her family, Ina was in in shock and almost catatonic for the long 60-mile journey back through the jungle to Captain Forbes's ship, the Bonetta. The two men who'd been redeemed were given land, currency, papers of freedom, and the new names of John and George Forbes. But Ina was to travel back to Britain with Captain Forbes. The Bonetta pushed off from Dahomey and sailed to the town of Badagri, which is in modern-day Nigeria, um, once the most ominous place an African person could have traveled, known as the Point of No Return, the last place their feet would have touched African soil. Captain Forbes was headed there for a very specific reason. There was a group of Anglican missionaries settled there, and he wanted some help from the ladies of the Church Missionary Society to get her ready. He recounted sort of a abbreviated version of what she'd been through, though King Gezo certainly had a reputation for brutality and struck fear into everyone. They knew all about him. Ina was fussed over and treated kindly, and Captain Forbes himself, the father of four children, maybe instinctively he felt that a break from men and soldiery for a bit was just what she needed. The women outfitted her with a wardrobe of English-style dresses, stockings, shoes, bonnets, gloves, and leather slippers. We can literally see what she looked like at this point, because a talented watercolorist called Mrs. Vidal painted a beautiful portrait of her. The scars on her cheeks themselves were a common enough sight in that part of Africa that I imagine the English missionaries had seen these daily, you know, on everyone they met. I'm just not sure if they could read the code, if you know what I mean. Captain Forbes, they said, what will you do with the girl? King Gezo gave her to the queen. I at least have to take her back to England and make the offer. And he couldn't imagine she would even take notice of her, really. But that's his job. And so he's going to do it. Most likely, my wife and I will simply raise her with all of our own children. Either way, she'll be out of here, out of her past and out of danger. Not out of danger, Captain. It's a long journey back home. It would be best and safest if we were to baptize her here before you go. And Captain Forbes agreed. During the baptism ceremony, she was given the name Sarah and then Forbes as her middle name after Frederick Forbes. And then he gave her the last name Bonetta after his ship. So her name is Sarah Forbes Bonetta. 
It was time to head to England. The crew of the Bonetta had been away from home for years, and they were going home to rest, reunite with family. They made special accommodations for their small guest and her new belongings and treated her as a pet. Everybody called her Sally, which was a nickname for Sarah. They played games. They taught her English. She was Captain Forbes's shadow all over the ship, but everyone was very kind. Commander Forbes, let's call him since he's no longer physically on his ship, took Sarah home with him to his home near Windsor Palace, a home he hadn't seen in years. And there he wrote a letter, calculated to catch the attention of Queen Victoria. He, of course, recorded her story in thrilling fashion, and then wrote, For her age, supposed to be seven or eight years, she is a perfect genius. She now speaks English well and has a great talent for music. She has won the affections, with few exceptions, of all those who have known her by her docile and amiable conduct, which nothing can exceed. She is far in advance of any white child of her age in aptness of learning and strength of mind and affection, and with her being an excellent specimen of the Negro race, might be tested the capability of the intellect of the black. It being generally and erroneously supposed that though the Negro child may be clever, the adult will be dull and stupid." I am very disturbed by that letter. I know he meant it well. He, of all people, had put in the work to eliminate the slave trade. He'd been patrolling that area and stopping slave traders and sending freed people um, to Sierra Leone and freedom for decades. I know he's coming from a good place, but what he means by this letter is as an anti slavery person, we can change the narrative by, quote, civilizing this young girl with her story. Maybe they could use her and people like her as an example of the civilizing influence of the British Empire. I'm sorry to put such a cynical take on it, but that is what I'm taking from his letter. Uh, You know, maybe I'm looking too much into it, but it immediately caught the attention of Queen Victoria as it was meant to do. He was fully prepared to add Sarah to his household. I am feeling for her right now. She's in strange clothes, in a strange place, learning strange ways in, in a place where no one looked or acted like anyone she'd ever seen in her whole life. But at least they were being kind. She was being fed. She had freedom to walk around. There were children her age, um, one in particular, exactly her age. But to Frederick's great surprise or relief, I'm not sure which, Queen Victoria summoned him to bring Sarah with him to Windsor Castle. The flurry of preparations could only be imagined. Notably, they spent some time teaching Sarah how to curtsy and how to behave to royalty. November 1850, five months after she was rescued from the clutches of King Gezo, Sarah was on her way to meet Queen Victoria. What on earth must have been going through her mind? I just couldn't guess. But Sarah told her story very simply and in English to Queen Victoria. The traumas related went straight to Queen Victoria's heart. And by now, Sarah spoke English amazingly well. After all, it had been a 100% immersion program. No one spoke her language, so she had to get with the program. Queen Victoria also was very intrigued by the scars on Sarah's cheeks and the noble status that they represented. She was so impressed with Sarah that Queen Victoria offered to pay all of Sarah's expenses to take a personal interest in her upbringing and actually assigned the wife of her private secretary, a Mrs. Phipps, to be the liaison between the Forbeses who were going to raise her and the crown. The Forbeses did not send Sarah to school. Uh, They didn't send their own children to school. Uh, It's tough to know, though, where she'd even have been able to go. But the Forbeses provided a good education at home, not untypical for girls of her time. 
After finishing up his manuscript of Dahomey and the Dahomeans, Commander Forbes went back to sea, back to Africa. And there were many, many visits by Sarah to the palace over the next year. Princess Alice, Queen Victoria's third child, was of an age with Sarah. The other children were her friends, and many an afternoon was spent riding the royal pony cart around the grounds with the young princes and princesses of England. The family called her Sally. She was allowed to return the favor and use family nicknames back. They got really close, really fast. But of course, as anyone who's ever had a child in daycare can tell you, a child's first exposure to unfamiliar germs is going to result in a long, unending series of colds. Sarah's constant coughs and runny noses made Queen Victoria very frightened for her. Sarah was actually treated by the Queen's personal doctor, who, with his colleagues, advised the Queen that the climate of England was actually dangerous for African children, and the Queen immediately asked her advisors to find a place to send Sarah, quote, in one of Her Majesty's dependencies upon the coast of Africa. It was decided, willy-nilly, by the Queen, that for Sarah's safety, she was to be sent to boarding school in Sierra Leone, under the Queen's personal protection. Mrs. Forbes was devastated, but a queen's whim is a queen's law, and once again, a group of women, high-born English ones this time, put together her clothes, her books, and other possessions in preparation for a long journey. All poor Mrs. Forbes could do was make sure Sarah knew that the family would never forget her. Just before her departure, though, the news came. Captain Forbes had died in Africa, still battling against the slave trade, and he had been buried at sea. It was a genuinely 100% tearful departure. Queen Victoria had paid a considerable sum of money to a respectable missionary and his wife to accompany Sarah on her journey back to Africa. She went to Freetown in Sierra Leone, where she was to attend the female institution, a school run by members of the Church Missionary Society, those same people who'd gotten her ready to go to England in the first place over a year ago. I am so reminded just now of A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. All the other girls slept in dormitories, but Sarah had a room of her own with a personally gifted picture of the queen in it. Everyone else wore simple uniforms. Sarah was outfitted in the finest upper middle class Victorian clothing possible. She was the personal charge of the headmistress who knew upon what side her bread was buttered with this student and had made a special point to take her on visits and invite her to tea. Other girls at school had also been rescued by British sailors from the slave trade. British ships had been patrolling this coast for decades and seizing and liberating the victims of the slave trade. Sierra Leone had been a hub of repatriation for the captives for many, many years. So she was not alone in having faced trauma exactly, but she was completely unique in her status as the protege of a queen. She studied reading, writing, Christian religion, geography, which they called globes, which I thought was funny, sewing of all sorts, decorative and practical, mathematics, and Sarah was also tutored specially in French and taught to play the piano. There was a lot of pressure from above. Sarah got frequent letters and parcels from the queen, whose personal secretary was following up with requests for school reports and sort of old chapping the superintendent of all the mission schools, you know, oh, surely old chap, you can blah, blah, blah. Attention was paid. Let's just say whole suites of new furniture were installed in Sarah's apartments. Sarah was allowed to host a tea party for the entire school at Queen Victoria's expense in celebration of Queen Victoria's birthday. I am just reminded of some interactions I've had with people whose families have had money for generations and are sort of innocently 
if benevolently out of touch. Does anyone watch The Office? There's a character of Nellie who's very rich and wants to interact with the warehouse manager who's told her about a thing called a taco that she's never had. And she reaches in her handbag and says, how much How much is a taco? $20? And hands him a whole handful of money. Yeah, well, Queen Victoria is pretty much just like that. She's providing Sarah with what she sees as, quote, the essentials of life and really setting her apart in the process. And if you haven't seen the Shirley Temple movie, Little Princess, you should go find it right now and watch it because it is exactly what is happening here. Well, the school itself, the regular school without Sarah in it, had been turning out teachers or educated wives and mothers of local businessmen and clergy. Instead, they have a surrogate princess in their midst. I mean, she was shown off proudly to every foreign visitor and Sarah became adept at the formal meet and greet at a young age. She began to be referred to as, quote, the little princess herself. Um, Queen Victoria started to refer to her as a princess. And that is why sometimes you'll see her referred to as Omaba Aina. Omaba means child of a monarch or princess. Sarah went on happily in this school and in that state for four years. And at the age of 12, a sudden message came from the palace. Send Sally Forbes Bonetta with no delay at once to England by Her Majesty's command. Queen Victoria, behind the scenes, had been working on this for quite a number of months. But to everyone in Africa, this seemed like an all of a sudden type of thing. Everyone started scrambling. And within weeks, Sarah was on a boat back to England. One theory as to why is that King Gezo's existence, for one thing, proximity and recent warlike activity in the area had scared either Queen Victoria or Sarah enough to prompt an instant, instant change. Speaking of change, Sarah could not in fact live with the Forbeses again, Widow Mrs. Forbes had retreated to live with family in Scotland. Queen Victoria wanted Sarah closer and arranged for the Reverend and Mrs. Schoen to be in charge of her upbringing. Reverend Schoen had been a missionary in Africa. He wrote books and articles about his explorations there and was a devoted student of African languages and culture. Queen Victoria really tried to get her into the best place possible. Sarah arrived at Palm Cottage in Gillingham, near St. James's Palace, and took up residence with her new family. There were seven children, and she eventually started to regard them as her brothers and sisters. In fact, Frederick Schoen, one of the sons, was almost exactly her age. She began to call Mrs. Schoen Mama, which I love. Sarah received an excellent education at home with the Schoen children, and was a frequent visitor and close friend of all the royal children. She stayed at St. James's Palace as a welcome visitor, and a special servant was dispatched to her private room specifically to tend her fireplace. Queen Victoria was always very concerned about how warm Sarah's underclothes were, for one thing. So if you have to be here in England in this climate, I'm at least going to make sure that you're healthy. So she had three doting mamas now, Queen Victoria, obviously, Mrs. Schoen, and Mrs. Phipps the private secretary's wife, and the person Queen Victoria put in charge of the big picture when it came to Sarah. She was growing up into a beautiful and refined young lady with close personal ties to the queen and to other members of the aristocracy, often visiting friends for weeks at a time, including, happily, the Forbeses in Scotland. 
how far she's come in a few short years. At 15, she was so close to the children of the royal household that she was one of the few Britons invited to attend the wedding of Queen Victoria's oldest daughter, who Sarah called Vicky, to Frederick of Prussia. She's been taken to the bosom of the family and society for sure. She was famous. But what was to become of her? Young women of the nobility often got married right out of the schoolroom. Princess Vicky, who had just been married, had been engaged since she was 14. Sarah's age mate, Alice, was on the marriage train, too. There's a whole committee evaluating possible husbands for Princess Alice. But what is the best future for Sarah? Queen Victoria was in no doubt about her views on women in marriage. Sally's marital future was weighing heavily on her when Sarah, age 17, received an offer of marriage by letter from a man named James Pinson Labulo Davies, a 31-year-old West African who had also been educated by the Church Missionary Society school system, a successful businessman and missionary worker, who she had once met during her time at the female institution there. Remember, everybody, this is just me talking. She was only there from 8 to 12 years of age. He wrote to reintroduce himself. Um, His wife had just died, and would Sarah consider marrying him? A man she had met once, best case scenario at 12, that she couldn't remember meeting, wanted to marry her. Definitely because of her relationship to the royal family, There's no other possibility. I think we can agree on that. I myself am viewing this with great side eye. Sort of, it's sort of gross. I mean, I guess seize the day and and shoot your shot and everything. And at this time, you know, a well-connected wife was a ladder to fortune and fame, I guess. Well, Sarah didn't take him seriously either. This random has just sent me a letter. She might have discussed it with her friend, Princess Alice, who herself at 17 had just been engaged to a prince. Who knows how the news, casually given, got back to Queen Victoria. But Queen Victoria took it so seriously that she started a behind-the-scenes background check into Mr. Davies, into his character, into his prospects, into his reputation. He came up, in all respects, acceptable. Months had passed since his proposal, and Sarah was asked, out of the blue, as far as she was concerned, by Mr. Phipps, remember, he's Queen Victoria's private secretary, if she would marry Mr. Davies. What? No! Sarah was shocked and dismayed that people took this man seriously. Everyone tried to talk her around. He has an established business, he's got respectable contacts, a very good education, well thought of in his community. No one said, the right color? Everyone meant the right color. Everyone was of one mind that she should only marry a person of color. Um, Queen Victoria's network hadn't turned up very many acceptable possibilities. Queen Victoria put pressure on her. It's the duty of a woman to marry. Now, Queen Victoria did let Princess Alice choose, but only from a carefully curated set of royal prospects. Sarah wasn't even given a list. She steadfastly refused to accept Mr. Davies as her fiancé. I mean, obviously, she did not want to marry a stranger, but part of her reluctance also stemmed from when she married Mr. Davies, that meant she was to move back to Africa. She felt discarded. So in a move straight out of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, Queen Victoria decided that Sarah could not be brought to understand her position as a dependent and the virtues of being well-settled in life with a good man Unless Queen Victoria removed Sarah from her comfortable circumstances at her foster house so she could better reflect on her future. Unbelievable. 
you do you know the part in Mansfield Park that I mean? So Fanny doesn't want to marry Mr. Crawford. So the rich relatives who raised her just like sent her back to her abysmally poor birth family to teach her a lesson. Let's hope Jane Austen was not the inspiration for this, but I would not be surprised if she was. Hmm. So suddenly Sarah was pulled out of the Schoen's house. Remember, she called Mrs. Schoen mama and just sent willy-nilly to be a companion to two elderly relations of the Phippses in Brighton. Sarah wrote a letter. My dearest mama, I kept my composure very well, and I went into my desolate little pigsty alone and had a regular outburst, which I tried hard to overcome. So she's not in a good headspace either. The months dragged by. The pressure mounted. Sarah felt honestly betrayed by her protector, to whom she was absolutely dependent. Here's some quotes from another letter to her mother. My dearest mama, I have been in a state of mental misery and indecision ever since your letter arrived yesterday. I shall now tell you truly what my thoughts and feelings are with regard to Mr. Davies. Had I cared for him, age would never have come in the way of my decision. It would be wicked, I think, were I to accept him when there are others that I prefer. I do not feel that our two dispositions would mix well together. I don't feel a particle of love for him and never have done so. I have prayed and asked for guidance, but it doesn't come. I am quite stupid and don't know what to do because I know there are many of my friends who would say, accept him and then you will have a home and protector. Others would say, he is a good man and though you don't care about him now, you will soon learn to love him. Others would say, he's rich and you marrying him would at once make you independent. And to this I say, am I to barter my peace of mind for money? No, I will never. I think we're very, very clear on what Sarah does not want. Queen Victoria's mother died in the spring of 1861, and Sarah was allowed to go into official mourning with the royal family. So they still regard her as family, despite having treated her like this. Now, we have talked very recently about the way royal families treat each other. So maybe this isn't surprising. So which is it? Are we a neglected dependent or are we in the bosom of the family? I don't know. The pressure began to get to Sarah. Her resolve was cracking, as Queen Victoria and friends had intended it would. If the queen pulled her protection, after all, where would Sarah be? What could she do? Where could she even go? She now, thanks to them, felt properly vulnerable. Prince Albert died in December 1861. Of course, we've covered the story about what that did to Queen Victoria in our coverage of her. But again, still, the royal household was in mourning. This, again, included Sarah. Finally, Sarah agreed in March of 1862 to marry Mr. Davies. However, she was not allowed to come back to either the Schoen's house or to St. James's Palace. Um, I don't know if it was an insurance policy, but she was to stay in Brighton with the people she was acting as companion to until the day she got married. (sighs) More pressure, I guess. And preparations swung into place. Princess Alice was married one month before her friend Sarah, and many viewers have said that was the saddest ceremony that anyone had ever heard of. Sarah did attend this wedding. Um, That's the second royal princess. She has been a valued guest at the wedding and everyone was in mourning. And by special dispensation, Princess Alice was allowed to change into her wedding gown only during the ceremony and was then to change firmly back into her black full mourning. Her mother cried the entire ceremony, not the way that other mothers cry, not the way that I plan to cry, but um, in abject despair through the whole wedding. It was not a very blissful ceremony. And then came Sarah's turn. 
August 14, 1862, at St. Nicholas's Church in Brighton. There were white bridesmaids, there were black bridesmaids, there were flocks of pretty, tiny children in fancy costumes. The bride was given away by a different Captain Forbes, brother of the man who had saved her from death 15 years ago. Sarah was now a married woman. It should be noted that on her marriage certificate, her name is written Ina Sarah Forbes Bonetta. So she signed her birth name on the only official legal document that was ever a part of her life in Britain. Soon after the wedding, the Davieses moved to Freetown in Sierra Leone, where Mr. Davies once more took up his businesses and his philanthropy. And Sarah began to teach at the very same female institution where she used to attend. Like before, when she was a student, Sarah was an odd one out. The white missionary teachers, however unconsciously, often thought themselves above their students, for sure, and also above their fellow teachers of color, most of whom had been educated for the specific purpose of uplifting their fellow Africans, like a multi-generational plan. But here's Sarah, undeniably better educated than every person in this place, married to one of the wealthiest businessmen around, with fine clothes, the manners of the upper class, and a close personal relationship with their queen. She had her own ideas about what would be helpful for long-range goals for the people they were educating, and the white missionary teachers were resentful of her presumption to disagree with how they taught or how they acted toward the students, but obviously you know, they can't oppose her, at least not openly. It was kind of um, gumming up the works there. Sarah expected and got dignity and respect both for and from her colleagues and more importantly, for and from her students. She slowly gained their respect over time and gradually began to sincerely like, if not love, her husband, who, to his credit, valued her presence and her work in a gratifying way. If th this wasn't the thunderbolt, at least they had a nice, comfortable handshake. Or, you know, more than a handshake. <laughs> For almost a year after her marriage, Sarah Davies was expecting a baby. She wrote and received permission to name the child Victoria after the queen, if it was a girl, who asked also to act as the child's godmother and take her again under royal protection, just like her mother. The Davieses moved to Lagos in modern-day Nigeria. And here's an interesting fact. There was a standing order given by Queen Victoria to the British military presence there that Sarah Bonetta Forbes Davies was one of only two Africans to be specially evacuated in the case of war. And that did not, and I repeat, not include her husband. Um, there was a religious leader that was the other of the two to be evacuated, which reminds me of a scene in The West Wing when one of the characters gets the card to go to the bunker and he's really upset because no one else has the card. He's the only one that's going to be evacuated. Well, that was Sarah. Sarah continued to be both a welcome correspondent and visitor to an ever more reclusive queen, Victoria, who loved baby Victoria so much and gave her pockets full of candy to take home. Victoria as grandma was way better than Victoria as mother. I've said it before when I talked about how she treated her daughter, Princess Beatrice's children, letting them set crocodiles loose in her office. I mean... And, of course, Sarah was in touch with her mama, Mrs. Schoen, and all the Schoens, her brothers and her sisters. 
Young Victoria Davies was educated in England at Cheltenham Ladies College and continued to see the Queen throughout her life. Sarah had two more children, Arthur and Stella, and Arthur too received an excellent education in Europe under the protection of the Queen. Mr. Davies had many challenges in business. He was sort of fighting for legitimacy in a non-colorblind world, let's just say. And his wife became his biggest supporter and fan. Um, She really, really regarded his persistence and diligence with such admiration and made sure to tell people at home so. In general, she led a contented, comfortable, and useful life. However, Sarah's health was never robust, even in Africa, Queen Victoria, so that wasn't the solution this whole time. Sarah had a persistent cough and shortness of breath that got bad enough that she was too ill to work with her school or charity endeavors, too ill to attend or give social functions. She was truly miserable. She was diagnosed with our old enemy consumption, tuberculosis. The recommended course of action was to be that old faithful prescription of days gone by, the change of air. Sarah wrote, My poor husband, who has had enough trouble to kill two ordinary men, made up his mind, at the instigation of the doctor, to send me away for some month's change. Madeira, in Portugal, had a consumption hospital with doctors experienced in the treatment of tuberculosis. The air was salubrious, the temperature mild. It was a beautiful setting, though mostly Sarah just saw what was outside of her windows at the Royal Edinburgh Hotel, where she convalesced along with five-year-old Stella and Stella's nanny. Although the doctors in Madeira had been confident that a six-month cure would see her right, see her healthy, and on her way back to her husband, Sarah got weaker and weaker. She wrote, Since being here so ill, I've been obliged to keep quiet. I've always liked writing, but writing has become too much of a task letters she received from home from her husband detailing his enormous reverses in business aggravated her stress and the doctors couldn't turn her around. Sarah Bonetta Forbes Davies died of consumption at the hotel in Madeira on August 15th, 1880. She was only 37. The owner of the hotel, one Mr. Reed, took Sarah's jewels to pay for her stay, her medical care, and her funeral. Sarah had asked to be buried at sea like her beloved savior, Captain Forbes, but everyone ignored this, and instead she is buried in plot number 206 of the British Cemetery in Madeira. Without a headstone, at least at first, she didn't have a marker until 2019 when funds were raised for a simple white marker. I say funds were raised. A young woman ran a race as a fundraiser to erect that memorial. I'll put details of that in the show notes. On the marker, it says, Lady Sarah Bonetta Davies, nay Forbes, Princess of the Egbado Omaba people, West Africa, goddaughter of H.M. Queen Victoria. Her husband did erect a granite obelisk in her honor nearer to home in West Lagos, which still exists, that says, in memory of Princess Sarah Forbes Bonetta. I will put all the links in the show notes. I do want to highly recommend a book called At Her Majesty's Request, An African Princess in Victorian England by Walter Dean Myers, and also two very talented artists that I want to draw your attention to. One, Ayana V. Jackson, 
who had a project in 2017 called Dear Sarah, where she dressed up as representations of different facets of Sarah Benetta and um, called herself the different names. So there's Ina, Sally, Stella, all of those different things. I mean, I'll post a link to her work in the show notes. And then in 2015, another photo project called Too Many Blackamores by Heather Ajapong, who is also an extraordinarily talented audiobook narrator. Um, her name is spelled A-G-Y-E-P-O-N-G. If you want to search for her, her voice is absolutely, unbelievably delightful. And so is her photo series. Although I will caution you that some of Ms. Ajapong's pictures I have seen identified in places like Pinterest and even unreputable articles as genuine pictures of Sarah Forbes Benetta. So use caution and be careful. Arm yourself by looking at the photo essay first. See? Two birds with one stone. I just want to quote from the um, project page of Too Many Blackamores. It says, the images are based on my own personal experiences as a young black woman dealing with the macro and micro traumas of racism encountered while traveling around European countries. Too Many Blackamores aims to challenge the quote, strong, independent black female narrative that can burden and often entrap black women. With Sarah as my template, the project attempts to illustrate the effects of such perceptual limitations while exploring my own interpretation conflicts of falling short from such mainstream ideals. So we can never know how Sarah felt, you know, about having been, I mean, obviously she was relieved at the moment of her release from King Gezo, if not in complete shock. But as she grew up among people whose motivations we might question, you know, we, we just really don't know how she felt. And really, I was thinking about that when I encountered the Too Many Blackamores exhibit and was was very touched and felt like I had a, maybe a little window into how lonely it was to be her. Thanks for listening. Bye!
It's the devil in the whiskey, not me. It's the devil in the whiskey. It's the devil in the whiskey, not me. 